Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federalist Society's virtual events. This afternoon, February 9th, we discuss the Biden administration on policing. What's the verdict? My name is Evelyn Hildebrand, and I'm an Associate Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Today, we are fortunate to have an excellent panel moderated by Mr. Mark Levin, whom I'll introduce briefly, and he will then introduce our speakers this afternoon. Mark is the Chief Policy Counsel for the Council on Criminal Justice, and he's also a Senior Advisor for Right on Crime. He is also a member of the Federalist Society's Criminal Law and Procedure Executive Committee Practice Group, so we're delighted that he can join us this afternoon to moderate the discussion. After our speakers give opening remarks, we'll turn to audience questions. If you have a question, please enter it into the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll handle questions as we can towards the end of the program this afternoon but you can enter those questions at any time. So please do in the Q&A tab on the bottom of your screen. With that, thank you for being with us today. Mark, the floor is yours. Well, thank you. And I couldn't think of a more timely topic for us to be discussing given the rise in homicides and certain other types of violent crime, as well as uh, uh, shortages of police officers in many jurisdictions. Um, and really, I think one of the challenges we're facing is to define the federal role in uh, policing, given that there's 18,000 police departments and it's traditionally a local function. And then furthermore, distinguishing between what's the appropriate role for the administration, the executive branch, uh, relative to Congress. And of course, we all know that uh, legislation on policing is stalled and probably won't be acted upon uh, in the near future in Congress. So one of the ways I hope we can kind of frame the discussion and I'll uh, provide a bit of a, a introduction on several issues is to look at areas of continuity and divergence uh, comparing this administration with the prior administration. And um, I would like to first introduce our panelists and then I'll give a, a brief rundown of, of where I see uh, some of these areas of continuity and divergence. Um, but first of all, let me introduce Renee Mitchell uh, and she served in the Sacramento Police Department for 22 years. Um, she's a leading researcher on criminal justice um, and has published numerous books on this. She's been inducted into the George Mason Evidence-Based Policing uh, Hall of Fame, and she is a head of the Society for Evidence-Based Policing. Um, she's done a great deal of research, including as a Fulbright Police Research Fellow on juvenile gang violence and many other topics, including um, how police can most appropriately use force and also uh, protect the community while making sure that uh, they, they use best practices. Um, she's also an expert on crime prevention, and um, her uh, she's doing technical uh, provides technical assistance to a range of agencies uh, through RTI International. So we're very pleased to welcome Renee Mitchell, and then also Andrew McCarthy, who of course is contributing editor at the National Review, a prolific author. Um, he's also senior fellow at the National Review Institute, a Fox News contributor, and of course, very importantly for this discussion, was chief assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Um, was involved in many important prosecutions, including um, terrorist uh, leaders um, and um, as part of the war on terror and including cases connected to the World Trade Center um, bombing in 1993. Uh, he has over 20 years of experience as a prosecutor and um, has written extensively on policing issues in the National Review and just about written extensively on everything else I'll say as well. So let me uh, 
first to kind of, uh, I think folks will find it very interesting to go back and look at an executive order that President Trump issued in June of 2020 and address credentialing, decertification, use of force. And um, so that came, of course, right on the heels of the murder of George Floyd. And the order had some really, uh, I think, notable provisions. It said the attorney general uh, should only allocate discretionary grant funding from DOJ to law enforcement agencies that have obtained or in the process of obtaining uh, independent credentials uh, from a certified uh, independent credentialing authority by the attorney general. And um, actually, I just looked, and what's interesting is there's a COPS, the federal COPS uh, grant solicitation uh, that went out in the middle of last year, and it referenced this executive order and said that only those that uh, agencies that are in compliance with it uh, could uh, be eligible for the grants. And part of the executive order also dealt with um, use of force policies, including chokeholds. And it said that um, that the independent um, certification body would uh, be required to uh, limit those uh, to where uh, it's necessary uh, to you know preserve the, the to, to save the life of the uh, officer involved. So uh, it, it had some some real teeth to it. And then it also said discretion funding can only be given for agencies that comply with reporting use of force data to the federal government. Currently, only about 27% of agencies report that data to the FBI. So um, there's there's a real um, continuity in many ways between what we're talking about today and course, as some of you may have heard, the Biden administration over the last several weeks has kind of been shopping around language for an executive order, and there's there's really uh, a fair amount of overlap. So one of the things I think as we look back on June 2020, um, it's some people might see it as a high watermark because, of course, um, the policing reform discussion hadn't uh, yet been, I guess, infused with some of the uh, what we've seen in the preceding um, year and a half, where we've had obviously this increase in, in, in violent crime, we've had um, staffing and morale challenges at police departments, and we've also had, um, we obviously had substantial unrest uh, in that summer of 2020 that proceeded. So the June 2020 date, I think, is, is, is interesting as we think about how the uh, public perception of this issue has evolved since then. But nonetheless, um, a lot of states have also acted, and I hope that we'll, we'll take a look at that, because um, a state like Utah, for example, has adopted uh, virtually unanimously in their legislature a lot of model uh, policies on officer wellness and training and so forth, uh, a use of force. Um, and um, I actually uh, uh, use those to uh, inform um, a couple of model policies uh, of the American Legislative Exchange Council that were approved in December of uh, 2021. So the federal government is, you know, by far not the only game in town on this. So uh, just going through a few issue areas that um, I think uh, where we could uh, perhaps uh, see either continuity or divergence. Uh, spending is certainly one that uh, I think there's there's continuity. Obviously, we've had a great deal of um, grant programs, and the administration has has proposed to increase those further, uh, particularly as it relates to uh, crime prevention initiatives like focused deterrence and street outreach, um, as well as just funding more cops. Um, uh, to to uh, the proposal would be to fund another twenty five hundred officers, and of course, this goes back to the Clinton administration and um, some of the 100,000 new cops pledged at that point, and then some of that money wasn't sustained over time. So it's a complicated issue, uh, but there seems to be wide agreement there. Um, one area where we've seen a shift is on pattern and practice investigations. Um, last year, the, the Biden administration announced pattern and practice investigations in Phoenix and Louisville, and certainly there have been concerns um, uh, by critics as it relates to federalism, and um, I think that uh, that will kind of continue to be an area of controversy. 
Uh, one area of, of continuity, I think, is the, the qualified and sovereign immunity issue. And there are actually a few cases at the Supreme Court, uh, Mohamud versus Weicker, uh, where an officer uh, was found by lower courts to have fabricated facts. Um, and the question is whether, you know, a suit can be uh, lodged for money damages despite the Bivens doctrine. Um, and there's a similar case, Egbert versus uh, Boulay, that's also at the Supreme Court. And the administration has, has um, continued to, as was the case during the Trump administration, aside with the officers in those cases and against um, uh, the ability of uh, the plaintiffs to recover uh, civil damages. Use of force is uh, is another area that is, um, again, does uh, fall in line to some degree with the executive order that I mentioned from the Trump administration. Uh, but there's also um, uh, been some additional developments. Last year, the Department of Justice announced it had prohibited its officers from using child calls and restraints except where lethal force is justified. It also dis discontinued something that's, of course, very timely this week, no-knock raids uh, by its agent, unless an officer reasonably believe believes that announcing entry would endanger the officer or another individual. Um, one notable fact is those uh, po uh, pol internal policies have not been extended to other federal agencies. And as we all know, lots of federal agencies, even the EPA and the Department of Education, have uh, cops, albeit you know, not that many. <laughs> so that's something to look at. Um, and then finally, military equipment transfers, uh, which um, uh, was something where the Trump administration in 2017 rolled back some restrictions that had been put in place under the Obama administration, uh, which basically said that for kind of the heavy duty military equipment like tactical armored vehicles and explosives could only be transferred if the requesting agency documented a need for the equipment, agreed to federal oversight and provided rele uh, relevant training. And that that uh, there's not been any action on this administration to yet to return to the, the Obama uh, approach on that. So I think that really it's a complex picture as, as we can see uh, from my perspective where we see both areas of continuity and divergence uh, from the prior administration. Um, so at this point, I'd like to first turn it over to Renee, and then we'll go to Andrew for um, their opening comments, and then we'll have time for audience participation. And really, um, uh, hopefully, we'll come away with a better sense not only of what has been done, but also where the administration should go on policing in the coming uh, years. So Renee, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, and that was a lot. Um, I think I'd have to do a massive <laughs> checklist to go over every topic. And I definitely don't want to spend 20 minutes on an opening statement. Personally, and this comes from, you know, experience and then looking at the research, what I would like to see and what would be nice to see is to really watch the administration use the research to support the direction that they're moving in. Because um, what I think we have seen um, quite a bit of is the pendulum swing back and forth based on, you know, politics with the public or what's happening. And everybody's talking about it right now about how the homicides are an uptick and you're going to see the pendulum swing back the other way to be tough on crime. And I think sometimes when politics get in the way of what we know works or what we have good evidence of that might work for social policy, that might work for um, helping people move out of poverty, those types of things, it gets distracted by um, the groups that could use this anecdotal information to drive their view on what should be occurring out in the field. And that was one of the things, if you look all the way back into 1967, when one of, and I'm going to butcher the name because I do it every time, the Katzenbach 
um, commission was put together. If you look at the overview and that outline, they really laid out a good plan for research, for developing what is now called the National Institute of Justice. They um, advocated for every large police department in the country to have a research arm within their department to really be looking at our, our practices, really effective and efficient. And if you think about since 1967 to where we are now, had we been following those things, we might not have had the chokehold continue for so long. Um, some of our riot and crowd control processes might not have been still the same way, but there's no um, funding mechanism to really have the same amount of research that we do in the medical field. And that's where, so for me to try to take everything, that whole big, broad checklist that you threw out there for, for me, I think it all could be tied in to a certain extent. If you looked at the underlying research for those topics and then let that drive where your funding should go, where your recommendations and your policies should go. And you could probably, just like you said, Mark, where Trump had some things that seem to align with Biden, you could probably really align those things along what the research is really pointing us towards. Oh, yeah. Before we go to India, I just was wondering if you on some of these uh, practice issues, um, to what degree you see kind of police agencies, many of them have evolved their own policies. Um, and, you know, of course, you've got some that I think there's a number that like there's five or six thousand agencies that have five or less officers. Yeah. So how do you kind of see this? What the best approach is to account for the 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 real heterogeneity of the law enforcement field? Well, I think it might be pushed by more of your private sector versus your, I mean, public policy is always going to push it, but because you have so many small agencies, they're actually looking to groups like Lexapol or LexNexus, where they are pushing um, your canned policies out to smaller organizations that don't have um, the staffing or the administrative support to help them with their policies. Um, and they're just using what is known by the bigger agencies to adopt those to their own organizations. So that's another area where it's not just the government, just like you said, it's, it's, it's other outside factors that are kind of helping um, groom that um, and push them towards a best practice, which I always say is just a common practice if you haven't tested it and evaluated it. So I don't know if that actually answered your question, but I think that's kind of where we're headed towards. Sure. And, and I mean, one of the other things I'm wondering, have you seen any examples where, I mean, the reporting requirements it like to be eligible for federal grants from a philosophical perspective, it seems fairly unobjectionable. It's an accountability aspect, but from a practical standpoint, you know, if you have a department with a staff of five people or something, I don't know if they could go into a collaborative, a cooperative with other, you know, nearby rural departments. Have you seen any collaboration like that, you know, to get kind of economies of scale and also deal with, you know, whether it's a state or a federal grant, kind of some of the paperwork things that just come about? So not yet. And you actually, you bring up a really good point because that is something that we've seen through our research, trying to work with um, agencies within North Carolina. And they were looking at how do you try to um, evaluate their calls for service? How do you disaggregate 
what calls should maybe go to the police and what calls could maybe be answered by a non-sworn personnel or a third party outside of the city, you know, where are the city's responsibilities? And what we've been finding over and over again is a lot of the cities, their systems that they have for calls for service or their report management systems are not great for pulling data. So besides not having staffing at small agencies, you might also have systems that are legacy systems that the city was able to purchase 10 years ago that doesn't even have the the ability to collect the data that they need to be reporting on or the staffing to pull it out with the knowledge and the wherewithal to get that to the federal level. So that's a that's the other piece that I think sometimes we have these ideas of like what the policy should look like, but nobody takes into consideration like what are all what is all the friction that keeps agencies agencies from abiding with these policies. And I think a lot of times the perception is like, oh, the the cops are unwilling, right? Like they're being obstinate. They don't want to give the data versus there is a lot of friction in the system that really keeps them from doing the things that they possibly want to do, but they're incapable of doing it because they don't have the knowledge. They don't have the skill. They don't have the systems all of those things. And we don't build in a funding mechanism for them to build, like you're saying, like a consortium. There's no funding mechanism to say, we know you all have these small agencies. How do we help you create the systems or create the knowledge base that you could pull out your data and give access to the federal government? Right. And then, of course, the bigger backdrop is, of course, mayors and police chiefs, they want yes. a higher percentage of their officers on the street, not, you know, people sitting at a desk. So, uh, Andrew, well, let me turn to you now. I know you've certainly um, identified some areas where the administration, uh, in your view, could uh, be doing a better job on this. And uh, so I'm eager to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, thank you for uh, for having me here today. And I want to begin by uh, echoing a lot of what Renee had to say, I, th- I think, um, you know, I was a prosecutor for a very long time and I happened to be a, uh, you know, of a conservative bent, but I was a prosecutor in New York city where my friends and, uh, coworkers and colleagues who I investigated and tried cases with were mainly liberal Democrats. So it's, it's dismaying to be, Uh, in the kind of a thicket that we're in at the moment, because I must say, and I'm not saying this uh, just to to try to turn it into something more idyllic than than, uh, I should, but it really didn't matter other than like having beers on Friday night. It didn't really matter what people's political bent of mind was. Most of that stuff, all that stuff got checked at the door when you were doing your job. And we really were pretty clinical. And this was my experience also dealing with uh, local district attorney's offices as I had to do more uh, over the years. Um, You know, they're pretty clinical and pretty professional about the idea that, you know, the job is to figure out what the facts are and figure out what the law is and apply one to the other. And it really shouldn't matter anymore what the political bent of mind of your, uh, you know, your prosecutor or police investigator is than, uh, you know, your chiropractor. Uh, It just shouldn't, it shouldn't matter. And where the work is done, as opposed to um, 
uh, sometimes in in the more airy places where policy is made, people have a real incentive to do things the right way uh, and to to use best practices. Now, I, I think you know the problem with policing is it's as human an endeavor as you can imagine. And it's uh, virtually impossible to make antecedent rules for all of the different contingencies that an officer is going to meet on the street. But I think sometimes, um, and this isn't a a shot at the Biden administration, I think this is a general comment about uh, the division of authority here, but sometimes the caboose is driving this train in the sense that Um, The federal government, because of the way the funding mechanisms work, has the capacity that the locals and the states don't to entice people into preferred federal practices because they can dispense funding in a way that the uh, that the other entities can't. But we shouldn't assume from the fact that they have that latitude that the federal government uh, necessarily has insight into what the best practices were. Uh, I think Mark said at the beginning of our discussion, um, there's 18,000 police agencies in the United States. That would be, if my math or if my memory is correct, it would be about 4,000 more police agencies there are in the country than FBI agents in the FBI. You know, I mean, most of the experience that we are gathering and the data that we're gathering to figure out what practices best practices are, are being generated from the ground up by local and municipal police agencies, not by the federal government. And what they understand in a way, I think Washington often doesn't, is that those practices are very much affected by local conditions. There is not a single template that they can come up with in Washington that's going to you know, resolve itself to perfect policing every place in the United States. That doesn't mean that we can't say things like, you know, chokeholds are a bad idea unless you really have to use them. But I think we ought to be modest. And I say this as, um, you know, I was a, I was a deputy U.S. Marshal for about um, five years before I was a federal prosecutor. So I, I did come to know Uh, the government in a variety of different law enforcement capacities. And what I would stress is I think we ought to have modesty about uh, what it is that we um, can learn and teach at the federal level. And there ought to be a lot more openness to the ideas that are generated upward rather than prescriptive uh, imperatives going uh, going downward. Um, I'd also want to make a, a important distinction. And if, if uh, I guess if you guys were up in the New York area, it would be hitting you over the head like it's hitting us over the head up here, uh, that there's a big difference and one that we have to take note of between policing and prosecution. Uh, I think that if you look at what's happening in New York City now, just to take an example, because I think it's a, it's a teaching moment for other parts of the country as well. If we can if if we can just observe politics for a moment rather than to politicize, uh, I think that Eric Adams distinguished himself from the from a wide Democratic field in running for mayor by being very aggressive on uh, the idea that crime was the biggest problem in the city right now and that. Uh, he, having been a police officer, uh, notwithstanding that he was, he thought uh, 
as progressive as the most progressive progressive in the race. He fought, felt very importantly that law and order and the projection of law and order was important to have a flourishing society and to do all the things that progressives or anyone else want to do. And he was elected, I think, uh, largely because of that, because crime is a problem in the city right now. Now, a lot of times I think we can overrate how much of a problem it is. It's a problem. It's it's on the rise at the same time. And I say this as somebody who grew up in the Bronx uh, in the bad old days of the, the 60s and 70s. You know, we had 485. I know murder is overused as a as a stat, but I think it, it, it's, uh, it tells the story here. We had 485 murders in New York City last year. That's very alarming because it's it's a it's a big uptick from 2017, where we actually had less than 300 murders in the city. But in 1990, we had 2200 murders in New York City. And going back over the uh, statistics a couple of days ago, I, I noted that from 1969 until 1995, there were at least a thousand murders a year in New York City. And most years it was considerably above a thousand. In many years, it was 2000 or more. So, you know, I don't want to get carried away with how bad things are in the city, uh, even with a sharp uptick where like, you know, there's five times fewer homicides in New York today than there were uh, 25 years ago. But also, you know, it took a long time to drive crime down. And I think we learned a lot of lessons about how to do it, which were not partisan political lessons. They were they were mainly on the ground, practical lessons about being able to mobilize the intelligence that the police collect so that you can dispatch cops to the places where crime is beginning to surge so that it doesn't spike in the first place. And there are obviously, uh, you know, problems with the way that that was done. Uh, but I don't think you can address the problems and not lose sight of the reality that it, the best policing is intelligence based policing. And you obviously have to be, uh, cognizant of people's civil rights and put in the protections that have to be protect, uh, put in so that the police have the confidence of their communities. But at the same time, the way you do policing has to be driven by intelligence and data. It can't be driven by political storylines or disparate impact theory or whatever voodoo uh, is is popular on a on, you know, whatever particular day. And the reason I mentioned New York City and the, and the distinction between policing and prosecution is what Mayor Adams found when he became Mayor Adams rather than candidate Adams is that it's nice to be able to choose the, the chief of police, but the district attorneys are separately elected officials who the mayor doesn't have any control over. And the police and the mayor can be as aggressive as they'd like to be about crime if the prosecutors won't take the cases. And if they're not committed to enforcing the laws as they're written, you're going to have a big problem with policing that the police are not going to be in a great position to do anything about. So I, I think the biggest thing we often overrate what the federal government can accomplish here for the very reasons that we we uh, you know discussed at the beginning here. I, I think the biggest contribution that the Biden administration can make is to encourage 
prosecutors to prosecute the law and to to recreate an ethos where we are actually supportive of police rather than putting them in fear that if they have to use force to arrest someone, it's at least as likely that they'll be prosecuted for criminal assault as whoever it is that they're trying to arrest. If you don't have a situation where the police believe they can do their job, and I'm not saying, you know, to give them latitude, I think you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, immunity. A lot of that stuff obviously has to be addressed. Best practices have to be addressed. Discipline has to be addressed. All that is true. But at the end of the day, the police have to feel like they can do proactive policing uh, and particularly that they are not going to be on the basis of how the statistics of who gets prosecuted come out, that they are going to be accused of having um, impure motives in going about their jobs. Uh, They have to be able to take the intelligence that they derive from patrols and from uh, from questioning of suspects uh, and use that data to move police to the places where crime is becoming problematic because before it spins out of control. And if you don't create an environment for that, I think we're going to have enormous problems. Well, those are really keen insights. And let me ask you and Renee, I'd like your opinion as well. Do you think there's a problem in terms of police um you know, pulling back, not, you know, being uh, kind of as, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, you said proactive, but but really looking for um, uh, focusing on hotspots, for example, where um, when I was obviously with CompStat, a major advance, and or do you also think perhaps that I know clearance rates have declined, like for homicides from used to be 80% and now it's 50% and, and much lower for other types of crime, but, but is there you know, in communities where there's not uh, perhaps uh, as much trust as we would like between police and the community, uh, is there a problem with, you know, witnesses not coming forward, maybe even victims not coming forward in terms of sharing the information needed to to solve crimes? And so perhaps a result of all that is there's somebody's less likely to be caught, so they continue committing more crimes, and we see the statistics continue to, to add up. Is that... Yeah, do you I, I, I mean, I'm sure that uh, Renee probably knows what the data says better than I do, and I, I do think that uh, an often uh, unseen part of this that we have to take into account is that a lot of police are leaving departments, um, which has, uh, you know, a lot to do with this as well. But, you know, obviously... If you create a situation where the police have to have to be very concerned about discipline and where progressive prosecutors are being elected on a platform of investigating the police while decriminalizing a lot of what we think of as traditional crime, that's going to convey a pretty serious uh, message to the police about their behavior. And I think it's had the predictable results as far as uh, as far as a lot of street crime is concerned. So, I, you know, yes, I think it's an enormous problem. So and Mark, to answer your question, I think and I hate when people say this answer, but it, I think it depends. I think it depends on where you're working, what state, what city you're working, whether you're working in a sheriff's department or a police department, because just like Andrew said, um, sheriffs are elected. So a lot of times you see within a sheriff's department, it seems like 
those agencies aren't run by politics as much. Whereas um, with most police departments, a police chief is an at-will employee who, you know, one bad shooting, one bad, um, you know, officer who has stolen something, uh, behaved inappropriately on duty that the police chief didn't have knowledge about or any kind of shady business that can be the end of their career by the very next day. You'll hear police chiefs talk about the fact, especially in California with the retirement system there, they don't want to become police chiefs too young because it's too long of a period of time to make sure that they don't get fired um, and then um, end up with no career and no pension. So I think on the part where like people de-police, like I said, I think it depends on the city you're at. And I also believe that most police officers are still trying to do their jobs to the best of their ability with what they've been given. So they're not going to go to a call for service where a citizen has been harmed or victimized in some way and not make an arrest, even if it's going to look bad for them or it's uncomfortable, they're still going to try to do what they can do. The being proactive, I think that's where your police leadership comes in. Your leadership has to be comfortable with the direction they're taking and be able to explain through data. There's enough evidence-based research out there to be able to say, you know, we're using a focused deterrence approach. We're using hotspot policing, and these are shown to be effective measures without being, you know, biased or discriminatory, but it's it depends on your leadership. You have to have the leadership within your organization that is comfortable with that and saying, here's why we're doing what we're doing and be and to be able to back it up with data and research. Um, but you do see, um, like Andrew mentioned, you do see the officers leaving. And I think it's because, and it's not, I think people think it's because cops feel like they're not being backed up like personally. I think it's much more, when you watch citizens be victimized over and over and over again, because they've gotten rid of like, you know, um, bail um, or uh, misdemeanors aren't going to be prosecuted anymore. And somebody's out within two hours and back out stealing cars and you arrest them and they're back out two hours later and still victimizing your community. It, I think officers get that feeling of like, what am I even doing? Like, I, I can't even keep my community safe because you're the same person who is on probation that has stolen three cars in one night. And those for those. And I think that's where like citizens perception of like, oh, my gosh, we can't keep all these people in jail. You know, they have addictions, mental illness. They've had a hard um, life and, you know, prison's not the right place. But you also have three victims in one night who their livelihoods can have been destroyed because that was their only transportation that they had. They might not have insurance for that vehicle. That was their only way of getting to work. That was their only way of picking up their children. And it seems like the lens has shifted to forget about the victims that are in the wake of all of this. And one of the things I actually think that the Biden administration could do that I think leans in whatever direction of politics um, would be to support like the defender, the, the DAs and the um, public defender's office. Cause often, you know, it's let's take away cash bail because we can't have people sitting in jails for long periods of time. But the one thing 
I have seen in my years as a police officer is you see both DAs and the public defender's office where you're showing up that morning on a case and they're like, I just got this case today. Um, and it could be, you know, a great bodily injury, like a really important case. They got it that morning because somebody else had to get it off their caseload and they're interviewing all of the officers. And I assume the same thing's going on for the poor defendant that they're getting the same kind of um, treatment of, Hey, I just got your case as a public defender because I have 40 other cases behind yours. So that's where I could see if we're going to support like a social system of not wanting to just jail everybody, not wanting to have this, it's easier to plea deal because it takes less time, like then support the system of our prosecutors and our public defenders. So that way people are really being represented properly and not just shoved through the system. And then, and I'm sorry, I'm taking up so much space. Oh, no. As somebody pointed out in an earlier discussion today, that our criminal justice system is really not a system, right? There are all these pieces that don't connect between the federal, local, state. They're not interconnected. And then when it comes to like our social services networks for both victims and offenders, there's nothing connected to the prosecutor's office very well. There's no tracking of any of that information. And so you just have both sides and, and we've shown with the research that a lot of times victims become offenders and offenders are future victims. You know, there's living in poverty and living in some areas of the city and, and living in certain lifestyles doesn't mean you're like, it's a clear cut one or the other. Often it, it's a mix, right? And we're not really properly supporting the, the services or the way the treatment that they should have. We're just, let's throw another program at it. Let's throw, you know, uh, violence interrupters, uh, scared straight, dare. Um, what are the other list of programs that we've had since the sixties? Great. Um, you know, say no to drugs. We love programs that have a title that's going to be the end all be all cure to crime, drugs, mental health, what have you. Yeah, no, that's a really uh, great point. And I think the it, it's overlaid on the backlog that we have. And I'm talking to you from Harris County, Houston. There's 100,000 cases backlogged. It's similar in Seattle, Atlanta. And so when you don't have a speedy trial uh, or even <laughs> anything approaching it, uh, that puts a lot of strain on um uh, prosecutors, defense lawyers, and you're faced with the question of having someone who's not yet convicted uh, languishing in jail or maybe not getting the right intervention if they're uh, released pretrial, which was the default um, under, you know, the Constitution. But but do they and, and you know, I'm also interested in I think part of what you brought up raises the question of like the feedback mechanisms for officers, particularly those that are assigned to a particular neighborhood. If the prosecutor, for example, told them, you know, later on, you know, as the case moved forward, okay, well, we determined this guy is seriously mentally ill, that, and if you see him again, here's what, you know, uh, what, here's what we're doing and all of that. And I think, as you said, they just keep encountering often the same person and they don't know if anything has been done to actually try to address um, the causes of them committing crime, if they're not going to be obviously taken off the street. So um, th those are really good points. We have a question I wanted to pose from someone in the audience, Alexander Phipps. Uh, he asked about the FBI's, um, about federal use of force data and whether 
whether it would distinguish between, you know, lawful force, which uh, versus, you know, force that was found through whether a court case or an internal investigation or independent oversight found to be excessive. Um, and so how, whether the public would get a kind of a representative uh, view of that. Well, I think that if, when they collect the data, all of that is is what they collect now, you know. At the margins, you're going to have some cases where you have incorrect decisions by judicial officers or, and they work their way up the uh, appellate chain. Uh, that probably is a wash, uh, you know, overall. Uh, but in collecting the data, you would get uh, you would get all of that. And again, you know, I can't remember if it was Renee or you or both of you, Mark, who uh, said this at the beginning, but that's. That's simply collecting information so that we can do things better. So I don't understand how anybody can object to that. And I'm, you know, I'm uh, sometimes I'm a till of the hunt on on, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the vertical as well as the horizontal separation of powers. I don't want to see the federal government um, lecturing to the states and the municipalities, particularly when there's good reason to think that they don't always have the best answers or the the best practices, but I can't think of a single good reason not to collect data. Renee, did you want to comment on that? Yeah. And I was, it depends on how, how they're collecting data. I mean, this is a discussion that we just had recently also um, at RTI is about use of force data. Cause a lot of times it's binary data collection, you know, was use of force used? Yes. No. You know, it's not like, how much or an injury? Yes, no, not like what type of injury. So if they're just reporting what they're collecting, they might not have collected any data that says, yeah, it was outside of policy. A lot there is that's internal affairs if it's outside of policy. So then that could be protected in some ways that they might not report. And I also wonder when they're doing the reporting period to the FBI, if you're going to have things like Andrew, like you mentioned, when it goes to court, if you don't have a decision yet, you're not going back to 2019 to say, oh, let's change these three cases that were now found to, you know, that broke the law that because now they finally made their way to court. And we have to go back and say these three uses of force broke the law. Right. So I think that's where that's why I always say that data is always dirty because it's it's never clean because often, especially with policing, there's things that happen after the fact that actually change a data point. But most people don't have the time um, nor the um, parameters set in place to go back to clean their data every year to change data points. So I don't, I don't know, like I could see it like out of policy, like maybe collecting that, but that's where like breaking the law, I think you would end up with having to go back to change data to report it. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think one of the things is some of the definitions of certain crimes have changed over time. So when you try to compare a year in the past to the current year, sometimes that creates a when the reporting standards have changed. Now, we have another question from Roger Candelaria. He kind of notes that um, we talked about 18,000 police departments in the country. I wasn't sure if his question relates to maybe whether some of them should consolidate or sheriffs and police should consolidate in some areas or whether I think he might be talking about whether we have too many federal agencies that have uh, 
you know, law enforcement officers, and maybe if they feel like they need an officer, the EPA to do a raid, they should have to go to the DOJ and say, you know, explain themselves uh, why it's necessary. So I was curious if either of y'all wanted to comment on, on the idea of there being too many police agencies or agencies with police. <laughs> well, I, I don't think there, I, I don't think there are too many police agencies. I think that, you know, that that's sort of spontaneously generated over time. And again, I, I wouldn't want to have a one size all fits all fiddle for who should have one and how, what the, what the, um, the lines of uh, reporting and communication ought to be. I do think that there ought to be clearer lines about what the federal government does. And I worry that, you know, a lot of what the federal government does is duplicative uh, and a lot of um, it, it's leaving on the side things that it ought to be doing, you know, that it's not doing, which um, which could be done by local police. And, and one of the things, I, for example, I this, to be concrete about it, um, I covered recently um, a story out of California, which is really mind boggling uh, about uh, what's going on on the in, in the train yards in Los Angeles, where it's like the Wild West all over again. And there, you know, we have these uh, these like 19th century style train heists where tens of millions of dollars worth of uh, of commodities are being raided out of trains. I think the, the estimate was at a rate of something like 90 a day um, under circumstances where, you know, we have it's significant because. 40% of the imports that come into the country uh, come into the ports that are adjacent to Los Angeles. And there's a goodly chunk of it that goes by rail uh, across the country. So it, it, I mentioned this because the big story that it, the press coverage uh, stressed on it was the apparent lack of interest on the part of the district attorney in Los Angeles to get on the stick and get on these cases. But it seems to me that, you know, here you have something that is almost by definition, the reason that we have federal law enforcement. I mean, it's it's a classic case of interference with uh, interstate and international commerce. And it's the sort of thing that the federal government could, you know, could bring its resources to bear and make a real impact and is in a position to do that, one would think more than uh, the state and municipal officials are, and yet you don't now. May, you know, may, I, maybe I'm falsely accusing them just because I haven't seen anything yet. I've done enough investigations to know that you know maybe they're maybe they're really investigating, and this is all a matter of secrecy now. And uh, soon there'll be you know a million indictments or whatever. But I I just think you know there are a few places around the country where there are crime problems that the federal government could uniquely be value added. And I worry that a lot of what the federal government does is instead duplicative. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, uh, the the uh, Union Pacific, the train companies can actually have their own police certified by the state. And uh, I guess it was stated in an article I read that there's only six officers between Yuma and California that Union Pacific has. Yeah, but they could, the, the thing, Mark, though, is they could have six or they could have 600. 
they can't prosecute the cases. If they bring them to the district attorney and the district attorney won't prosecute, well, you know, you said that they have, uh, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned redefining certain crimes. If, if armed robbery is now trespass, you know, I mean, is that really going to help them a lot? Yeah. And we're not talking about obviously shoplifting, petty theft. I mean, this is serious. Um, and um, so, um, well, uh, I, I, I guess at this point, um, the I wanted to just kind of we've got about 10 minutes left. And um, I, I do see one uh, question just about the um, there was a question that this touches on what you were talking about earlier, Andrew, is just, you know, how somebody was asking how the police can maintain kind of be above the fray and not be seen as um, is political. And yet, obviously, police have the right to their opinions. And, and obviously, police unions, for example, get involved in uh, political campaigns. Um, but um, I mean, do you think the image of of police, like what you kind of outlined earlier, Andrew, that, that it's that, you know, being objective arbiters of of the law and preservers of, of order. Uh, do you think that that is still um, uh, kind of universally, I guess, acknowledged or, or uh, maintained? Well, it's never been universally acknowledged, right? It's been, there are, it's preponderant and there are times that it's better than other times. And I do think, you know, look for what it's worth, I think for the most part, the police leave the, um, the, the jabbering about uh, the political stuff to the union. And, the, and in New York, that's always been the case. I imagine in most big it's certainly the case in San Francisco where it looks like the police union is at war with the district attorney at the moment. But I don't think the cops like in the day to day of the job or the four corners of, of uh, investigations are political. I just that, that's um, I can't say it's never, ever happened. That would be ridiculous. But it's I, I think overwhelmingly the experience of people who are in the system is that they make evidence based decisions. Now, that doesn't mean that they all have good judgment and it doesn't mean that they always make the right decisions. But I did not witness. And I admittedly, I was a federal prosecutor. I, I was not dealing. I, I dealt plenty with uh, with the NYPD and local police. And the last five years I was in the U.S. attorney's office, uh, I ran the satellite office. So I, I dealt with a lot of municipal police departments in upstate New York. So I do feel like I know enough about this to say that, you know, I've seen a lot of egregious mistakes made, but I can't say that, uh, that uh, I, I thought that politics drove, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I can't think of a single time where the, you know, where there was a big problem and the problem was that the, that the law enforcement had been politicized. Renee, did you want to address that? Yeah. So, and I don't, and I agree with you in many ways, Andrew, as far as like individual cases where I think policing gets politicized is when it comes to like cities and counties and how they drive what's important to a police department to focus on um, or what they say you can't focus on anymore. Um, right. And that's where I think the politics come in of what your city council is made of. Um, so are you leaning towards social services and, you know, diversion and, you know, um, 
approaching it from that direction or are you leaning more towards sanctions and you want to see this area cleared out and and the shifts happen and i think the, the reason why the individual like prosecutors cops i think the reason why we don't feel politicized as an individual is because we all know that pendulum just swings back and forth and back and forth. So over your 30 year career, you're just like, okay, I'm still doing the same job, trying to be effective for my community. And whatever you tell me is my new thing I'm supposed to be focusing on or the thing I'm not supposed to be focusing on or the training I'm supposed to be taking. I'm just going to go through those the thing, those things. And while I am doing those things, I'm still going to try to keep my community safe. I'm still going to try to like catch the people that commit crimes. I'm still going to try to be a shoulder for a victim. I'm still going to try to write a good report. So that way, if it, I can make a good case, they, you know, get the appropriate amount of time or whatever. And on the same side, I think you have a ton of cops and prosecutors who, if you handed them like the right program that said, Hey, we know this works to help offenders not reoffend. We know this works to help victims recover and not have PTSD and not lose um, days on the job or whatever. I think every prosecutor and every cop, no matter federal, state or local, would be on board with that. The problem is, I think most of us have seen through the politics, it's just some new program of the day that has no, usually I'm making a broad statement, research or data or evidence behind it that's just slapped on, it's adopted from some other agency and that's what we're forced into. And so that's that's kind of my, my different take on it. But I do agree with you, Andrew, like when it comes to the day-to-day, like it is about, this is my case, I'm, I'm doing the best job I can and I'm trying to do an unbiased, um, appropriate, you know, enforcement of the law and supporting my community. Cause that's why I think everybody gets into this. You know, I, there's not a person I know that's gotten into the criminal justice system to, you know, for other reasons other than they think that they could build a better place. Yeah. If I, if I could just respond to that, cause I'm, I'm glad that you said that I, I've over the years talked a lot about the, um, sort of um, the way this system works, the proper and the improper politics that's applied to it. And I think it's just unavoidable in a system. uh, Let's leave aside whether it's really a system or not, but for for simplicity's sake, in a system where prosecutor, uh, prosecutorial and police power is executive, there are going to be policy choices that get made with every new administration. And it's part of the political process. It's what they run on. They do change policy. I was there when, you know, uh, the Reagan guys were in and it was all about organized crime. And then, like you know, later the Clinton guys come in and it's all about health care fraud. And, that, you know, every administration's got its set of priorities. Then all of a sudden something like terrorism happens and uh, the ground shifts beneath you again. The one thing I would say about it, because you're always, you're quite right, you're always going to have the pendulum swinging back and forth, and it does lead, it does cause confusion for the people who are just trying to do the job and keep the the community safe. I think the big thing is, 
as long as the, the policymakers are really politically accountable, you have some, some control and some rationality in the system. I think where things break down and you end up with bad policy that you can't dig out of is when there's a disconnect between the people who are making the policy and the, the people who have to live under whatever the regime is. So if you don't have political accountability, you're lost. And as long as you have it and it's, and it's reasonably effective, policy will be better. Good point. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting point. And I think, you know, Renee, your your point kind of alludes to the pace of change and how that uh, may be or not be aligned with what practitioners can actually um, implement on the ground. And you think like about the education system, if you said overnight, every teacher has to do things totally different from what they've been doing for could have been decades that they've been a teacher. And yet we know we do learn things. We have techn technological advances, but the pace of change, I think, is something that we really have to uh, fully consider uh, when making decisions. So uh, it looks like we might be um, approaching our time here, but I really do want to thank both Renee and Andrew and uh, thank our audience for, for the questions and, and comments. Um, I think that uh, we've uh, really covered some important territory and hopefully uh, had a, a insightful discussion. And I hope that we're able to, to uh, talk about these issues again uh, soon. So thanks again. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. And on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our speakers, our moderator, and our audience this afternoon for tuning in and sending in your questions and comments. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. Keep an eye on your emails and our website for announcements about upcoming virtual events. And with that, we are adjourned. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.